Good morning. That certainly sounded enthusiastic. Good morning. That's better. Welcome to October. Wow. Christmas catalogs were out five weeks ago. So. <laughs> A thing of the past. This, this service understands what I mean by Christmas catalogs, but it's been a while since we used to get the wish book in the mail. Yeah. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to go down to verse 36 today. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. How many of you have a footnote at that point? Or a different word than sinner? My footnote says an immoral woman. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. So Jesus, as a pretty famous rabbi at this point, has been invited to be a dinner guest at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Now, if you recall thus far in the Gospel of Luke that every time Jesus encounters a Pharisee, what happens? <laughs> There's trouble, sure. And I don't want to accuse an innocent man, but I'm a little bit suspicious that this dinner invitation is a setup trying to again catch Jesus or discredit him in some way. I mean, after all, Simon's comrades are there in typical form, according to verse 49 later in the chapter. And Simon, as we're going to see, neglects all the normal amenities and niceties that one would expect from a friend. And so Jesus goes to his house and reclines at the table. It mentions reclining at the table twice, once in verse 36, and then when the woman learns that Jesus was reclining at the table. Kind of a strange way of doing things. We don't recline at the table, but they did in that day. The Jews ate at a table that was just inches off the ground. They would lay on their left side with their arm on a pillow each person's head would be at the table, and their feet would be pointing away from the table. That's what this is in reference to. That was their custom at that time. And as the honored guest, Jesus most likely would have been laying and reclining right beside Simon, the host. Well, in the middle of this feast, in walks in this nameless woman that has a reputation all over town. What was her sin? Adultery? Quite possibly. What was her reputation? Well, again, we can't be sure because the Bible doesn't spell it out right here, but prostitution is probably the best guess. 
Why do I say that? Well, that would explain, number one, why she had a reputation all over town. And secondly, that would explain why her hair was let down rather than hidden under a veil, as would have been the custom. And that would also explain why Simon kind of recoiled when she touched Jesus. Now, how does a woman of her standing and reputation get into Simon's house in the first place? I mean, how many of you are just going to walk in? You know, but that's what she does. Well, during feasts of that, of that time, in that culture, people were often allowed to observe the festivities through the window or through the doorway because it made the host feel important. Look what I'm doing. Look who's my guest and things like that. And so people would come and just be allowed to watch. Sometimes they were even allowed to talk with the guests, and if they were lucky, they might even get to take home some leftovers. This woman takes advantage of the custom of that day in order to come in and get close to Jesus. So that's one possibility of how she got in so easily. <laughs> but somebody else suggests that if she were a prostitute, that it's possible she had been to that house before on business. Well... Maybe. I don't want to accuse Simon unjustly, but it wouldn't be the first or the last time that a religious leader did such a thing. But she carries with her an alabaster jar of ointment. Such a jar was commonly kept on a string or a chain around a woman's neck. It would be tucked into her clothing. That was about as safe a place to, to keep such a costly item as any place else. It was also convenient to keep that ointment on hand, which was used <laughs> both as a perfume and as a breath freshener. Now, all of you women that may have sprayed some perfume on this morning, how many of you opened your mouth? <laughs> all right. But that, again, was the custom of the day. And if she were a prostitute, both would be important in that line of work. Alabaster is a translucent stone that was reamed out to make a jar for such precious ointments. Uh, when we were there in 2010, we saw a little alabaster place, and we saw the people working with that type of stone and making these different types of, of vessels and, and jars and, and things like that. And this is a fairly substantial gift that she's bringing. A similar gift was valued at a year's wage in John chapter 12. This gift is even more valuable considering what her occupation might have been as a prostitute. Again, I can't prove that, but please understand that <laughs> there are very few old prostitutes. Because as she nears retirement age, her savings are more critical. There was no social security system in Palestine at that time. She can't rely on the state to support her as she grows older. And in that particular occupation, if that was the case, she's going to have a difficult time attracting a husband that will provide for her in her old age. So this is a pretty passionate scene here. 
She comes to Jesus with the obvious intent of anointing him with the ointment. She winds up paying respect to him in four different ways. Number one, her tears wash his feet. Your Bible may say, wet his feet. The word for wet in other places in the scriptures is translated as rain. So her tears were falling profusely. She was crying repeatedly. There were enough tears to wet, to rain down on his feet in order to wash them. Secondly, she wiped his feet with her hair. So all of her vanity is gone. With the most humble act, she's ministering to the Lord. Then she kissed his feet. And this is a, a strengthened form of the verb to kiss. In other words, she kissed his feet repeatedly and profusely. And then she anointed his feet with ointment. You would usually anoint with what? Oil. Olive oil would have been the typical thing to anoint with. But ointment was more expensive than oil. It had a heavy, rich smell like perfume. And the word used here for anoint is not the word used for a normal religious act, but this word we might translate as rub or massage. So she rubbed and massaged that oil into Jesus' feet. Now notice verse 39 and following. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Mark Moore, in his book or commentary entitled The Chronological Life of Christ, says Simon's thoughts can be summarized as follows. Number one, his reasoning here, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. Number two, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, he would not let her touch him. Number three, Jesus is letting her touch him. So the conclusion, therefore, Jesus must not be a prophet. You follow his reasoning? That's what he's most likely thinking. The problem with coming to that conclusion is in his second minor premise, that if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, he would not let her touch him. His premise there is incorrect. That's where Simon is mistaken. And Jesus is about to prove to Simon that <clears throat> he not only knows exactly who this woman is, but he also knows exactly what Simon is thinking. So Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And unaware that Jesus has perceived his thoughts, Simon, <laughs> in a very respectful way, says, Say it, teacher. 
Tell me, teacher. A lot of hypocrisy in Simon, by the way, because what's running through his mind and what's coming out of his mouth are two different things. Jesus responds with a simple parable about a moneylender. He's somewhere between a a respectable banker and a crooked loan shark. In other words, this guy is not going to be too generous, but let's just pretend that this particular moneylender happened to release these two from their debt. The one that owed him 50 denarii and the one that owed him 500 denarii. Now understand that Simon and the woman are represented by those two. Who's the one that owes Jesus 500 denarii? The woman who only owes him 50. Simon. At least that's what Simon's way of thinking would have been. That's the point Jesus is trying to get across here. So, this particular moneylender forgives them both. In other words, he, he made a gift of their debt. And a denarius represented a full day's wage for the average workman. So one fellow owed him about a month and a half salary, and the other guy had owed ten times as much, nearly two years of salary. Neither one has the ability to repay. So if the moneylender forgave both debts, who would love the moneylender more? Simon begins by saying, I suppose, which seems to have an air of indifference about it. And he might be thinking that he's about to get nailed by Jesus, but just can't figure out how. But nevertheless, he answers correctly. The one with the bigger debt forgiven will love the moneylender more. So look at verse 44. And turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. It's a very tender scene. Jesus looks at the woman, but he speaks to Simon. He compares the way the two have treated him. Jesus begins with the washing of feet, which was an important part of Jewish hospitality. You walk along dusty roads in sandals, a person's feet got very dirty in that day. So it was courteous to have your servant wash a guest's feet. It would save the guest the embarrassment of doing it in front of everyone. But Simon didn't take the extra effort to get that done. The woman, however, not only washes Jesus' feet, but does it with her own tears and dries his feet with her hair. Then Jesus mentions the greetings of a kiss. Nothing romantic implied in either of the kisses. Males normally greeted one another with a kiss on the cheek. And in that country, 
and in areas there in the Middle East, it's still done to this day. That's just their culture. Simon didn't show Jesus that affection. But the woman not only kissed him, but in total humility, kissed his feet. And furthermore, she's still down at his feet, fervently kissing them. Then Jesus mentions the act of anointing. Again, a special sign of honor, usually done with olive oil. That was a normal household oil, but Simon doesn't honor Jesus that way. This woman, however, not only anoints him, but does so with the ointment in that alabaster vial, much more valuable than oil. And instead of honoring Jesus' head, she even honors his feet, which was seen as an extreme luxury. So in verse 47, he continues this comparison between Simon and the woman. She has much to be forgiven, therefore she loves much. Simon has little to be forgiven, so he thinks, therefore, he loves little. Simon thinks he has little to be forgiven of. But the fact is, Simon is as unable to pay his debt as the woman is unable to pay hers. Jesus stoops no lower in allowing this woman to touch him than when he entered Simon's house to dine with him. The bottom line is what? We're all unable to repay, and we all need Jesus. Bottom line. So notice the conclusion in verse 48 through 50. Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. He doesn't say that to Simon. That's said to the woman. And those who were reclining at the table with him, Simon's comrades, probably more Pharisees, they began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So for the second time at this meal, Jesus is the subject of debate. That same debate arose many months ago in Capernaum, when four men lowered their paralytic friend on a pallet down through a roof for Jesus to heal him. And Jesus looked at that man at that time back in Luke chapter 5 and said what? Son, your sins are forgiven. And what do the people begin to say? That's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins except God alone? But Jesus knew their thoughts just like he knew Simon's thoughts here. And back in Luke chapter 5 he said, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your pallet and walk. And he did. <laughs> I love that story. But here the same debate arises again. Among Simon's friends that are seated at the table. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And they're right. They just don't realize God is right there in front of them in the person of Jesus. Now this time Jesus doesn't offer any evidence. No healing like he did back in Luke 5. In fact, he apparently ignores the rumblings going on about the room and he just concentrates on this vulnerable woman and he says to her, your faith has saved you. And that short verse is packed with meaning. What or 
maybe I should say who, is the object of her faith? Well, obviously Jesus is. And her faith in Jesus saved her, because only Jesus can save. But He saves those who respond to Him in faith. And furthermore, her faith is not seen by a confession from her mouth or by her speaking words. Her faith is seen in her actions of lavish worship upon Jesus. Indeed, our faith can only be measured by our actions. Because faith without actions, or should we say faith without works, is dead, being by itself, according to James 2.17. So Jesus proclaims the woman has been saved, so she can now go in peace. And she may not look any different, but she's different because she's already been saved. And she's still got a lot of work to do, a lot of things to work out. She's still going to have to overcome temptation. She's still going to have to deal with her reputation around town and the social stigma attached to that. She's going to have to figure out a way to support herself financially. But she has peace in her life now, true peace, because Jesus has forgiven her. But what about Simon? Well, Simon and many of his fellow Pharisees fell into the trap of the devil by measuring themselves by one another, comparing themselves with one another. Now listen, folks, when we measure ourselves by other human beings, we usually select those that we think are not as good as we are. And so we make ourselves look pretty good when we do that kind of comparison. When we measure ourselves to, by one another, we're always using imperfect standards. And we're always able to find ourselves better than our standards. And so we justify ourselves and declare ourselves able to stand on our own goodness without need of the grace of God. Simon compared himself to the woman when he should have compared himself to God. And every one of us should compare ourselves to Jesus and learn that we need His forgiving grace. So what a scene that Luke gives us here. The woman still kneeling before Jesus. Her hair is still hanging unattractively. The tears are still flowing. She loves Jesus. But in contrast, Simon's jaw is set. He has no love for Christ. He has no love for the poor woman. He's graceless. Forgiven people love God and God's people. Those who are forgiven much love much. Do I really love Him? Do you really love Jesus? It's the unfailing test of our faith. Is our love for Him growing? It's a sure indicator of our spiritual health. And how beautiful Jesus is in this account. He's pure, utterly sinless, holy, perfect. Appreciated the songs you picked out today that told us that. And yet this sinful woman sends from him not condemnation, but forgiveness and acceptance that freed her to pour out her love upon him. And that's the way Christ receives all sinners who come to him. And how beautiful the woman is now. Because she's been forgiven. Though her sins were as scarlet, now she is as 
White as snow, like Andy pointed out. And she feels the freedom and the joy of her forgiveness. And if you understand the gospel, you understand what has happened inside her. Because she truly loves her Lord. And think about it. Herb was telling us to think about eternity and heaven. Even though that woman's been dead for 2,000 years, she loves Jesus more today than she did then. And she's still worshiping Him. Do we love Him like that? Do we truly love Him? I pray that you do. So who do you identify with in this story? Here's application time, and I'm about done. You ladies can come back up if you want. Or I should say, please do come back up. <laughs> we want you to. Who do you identify with? Are you like Simon? Do you refuse to give grace to others? Are you the hypercritical, judgmental kind of person we've talked about here about a few messages ago in Luke? Do you refuse to give grace to others? Are you comparing yourself with other people that you don't think measure up to your standards? Are you unimpressed with Christ? Do you have no love for Jesus or for others? Do you only see the faults of others? Do you have a list of people in your mind that you don't think are good enough to be saved? Are you like Simon? Or are you like Jesus, who loves others, dispenses grace? Are you willing to sacrifice self for the good of others, Jesus sacrificed himself in the greatest way possible to save the world, to save you, to save me. Do people see Jesus in you? Or are you like the woman today, in need of grace, in need of mercy, in need of forgiveness? Do you need to come to Christ? If so, why not do so right now? today. And don't think, well, I'll come to Christ someday, but I need to clean up some things in my life first. No, 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 no. This woman didn't. She came to Christ just the way she was, but she went home different. And so can you. Don't wait to clean up your own messes. Come to Christ, believing in Him. Let Him forgive you first. You'll go home different. So, do you want to come to Him for salvation? Or restoration? Or strengthening? Who do you identify with in the story? And if you need to come to Christ today, you come right now. Meet me down front. I guarantee you, you'll go home different. Let's stand and sing.